You are listening to the Mead Musings Podcast, the platform we talk about disabilities, critical illnesses and mental health. This podcast is hosted by a resilient critical illness survivor. Sit back and listen to truly inspiring men and women share their journey, struggles, pains, and strategies for excelling in life despite debilitating circumstances. My guest today is Kat Lore. She's based in Aldridge in UK and uh, she has a story with a lot of twists and turns. I've just been dying to hear this story. So welcome to the Meet Musings podcast, Kat. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Looking forward to the story. Okay. So let's uh. start with a little introduction. If you could just tell mm-hmm. us your background, where you were born and raised. I, I, I'm Kat, that's Catherine, but it's Kat because when I lived on, on site, site with the travellers, nobody could be bothered to say my full name. So everybody just called me Kat and that's how I just stuck. So it, it's just been Kat and it's just easy. Yeah, I'm from the Black Country, which is uh, an area, a, a lot of people think it's Birmingham, but it's not. It's like it was the Black Country because it was the industrial area of the Midlands. And it's kind of like Dudley and Cradley Heath and those sort of areas. And it's a really thick, thick, what people would imagine is a Birmingham accent, but it's a very, very thick accent. The yam yam, as they call us, yam yam, because instead of saying you or yup, we say yam. Yum. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> so this is where we're from. And yeah, I was born and raised in the black country all my life. When I was younger, school was just terrible, 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 as it is for a lot of people. And so I was just so hated so much, and everybody hated me so much that it didn't even bother to bully me. It was just terrible. So I just went off to work instead and worked from when I was 13. And then when I was 15, did my GCSEs and went day after we finished my GCSEs, just got on a plane and went off to Greece and lived there for three years. And because I, I think the only way to learn a language is to actually be there as well. And to, to so when I came back, I had a language. So even though I didn't any school, I had a language so I could get a job as an interpreter, which has been very, very useful. Obviously, you know, uh, not many people speak Greek, so it's been very useful. I worked in House of Fraser and that was handy, getting a good job. Oh, that's so interesting. So you worked as an interpreter? Oh, yeah. When I I went to the interview, see, the woman that interviewed me was Greek and she was the only other Greek speaker in the shop. So I think she needed another Greek speaker so she could have time off. <laughs> so that was something that was actually in your favor because you could speak another language. <laughs> yeah, learned nothing at school, but at least I've learned Greek. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. Tell us a bit about your adventure you did say you've completed your GCSE yeah yeah I, I, I did do I went back to school and did my GCSEs and I passed um I think eight or eight or some of them if you kind of 
I, I really approve these days of uh, non-schooling. If you know what I use, it. it's not homeschooling, it's non-schooling. And it's where you actually, as a parent, you actively don't lean your child towards any learning. You provide them with all the resources and opportunities. So it's not like an opt-out situation that you don't do anything. But the child then chooses for themselves what they want to learn and when they want to learn it and how they want to learn it and a lot of very famous people have done this a lot of people like Einstein was a non-schooler a lot of um, Steve Jobs and that was a lot a non-schooler a lot of very famous and successful people and a lot of people who have sort of learning disabilities like autism and that it works very very well for them and uh, I sort of push my children a little bit that way even though they went to sort of regular school uh, I was always like uh, take them out to the beach and we'll go camping here's a knife and here's a whistle and just go off and learn and you know experiment <laughs> and learn about the world and uh, uh, I suppose a lot of people quite being a bit irresponsible but <laughs> fortunately it worked <laughs> oh I know these days with all these lockdown everybody's now homeschooling I know I'm not a teacher I would find it terribly hard to teach a child I know, but I would have loved homeschooling because it gives the parents the opportunity to actually spend a bit of time with their kids. You know, what happens these days is that parents don't even know how to communicate with their kids. When we were young, parents could stay at home with their children. But these days, uh, it, to run a whole household, you need two parents working, don't you? So it's like very hard for parents to stay at home financially. At the, at the same time, we need a work-life balance so that you understand your kids, you raise them up properly, mm. and you spend time with your family. But with the kind of life we were living before lockdown, everybody mm. was going to work and you come back home and you just mm. get like takeout or whatever meals from restaurants which is not good enough the kids are ready to go to bed back yeah. in the days no, when I was no. growing up my parents spent time with me we would we would have assignments yeah. my parents would help me with the homework or whatever and they would have time to mm. talk about what school was about and things like that so this i think mm. that's one of the benefits of this lockdown that i'm saying really anyway back to you i i, I agree with you totally yeah i agree with you but uh, not many people uh, are, are as lucky as I, i've been but you know my dad was he wasn't one of everybody else's dad went to the pub went drinking but my parents spent time with me you know and i don't think there's any you can't there's no 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 alternative to that it's like uh time is more valuable than anything when you're a child and it's more valuable than anything material thing they can give you is their time that's it's everything when you're a child that is so true you know so let's uh, i know not everybody is that lucky <laughs> yeah so let's talk about your adventure in uh, greece ah uh, <laughs> did you have memorable ones well it, it's it's a funny thing because you learn what it is to be a migrant worker you learn what it is you earn half as much as everybody else and you do twice as much work uh because you are the migrant worker so it's sort of given me an appreciation of what people who come here to work do because they, they really is hard for them uh, but you just do 
every job that is available. I've worked on the building sites and because to get the job, basically you just wear a bikini and because I was quite young at the time, I was about 19, so a blonde hair, a bikini, and they'd give you the job because they just wanted to see you walk around in a bikini. But uh, they'd also have on the building sites that the grandmothers working all in their black, you know, because they were uh, widows and stuff, and they'd be carrying the because they have no shame at all. They don't care that their grandmother is carrying a, a bucket of cement on her head or whatever. They, they don't mind at all and they'll sit there having a coffee while the grandmother's hauling cement. But yeah, I did all that and uh, worked in a fish farm, worked on, on the fishing boats, getting fish when you come back into shore and stuff. And Oh, the worst job is the olive picking because people think, oh, it's great. It's very romantic, go and pick olives. It is not at all. You're on your hands and knees in the mud picking up olives off the floor and you're totally covered in crushed olives. I used to dream I was drowning in olives and I I cannot eat olives to this day. It's just the smell of it is just disgusting. It's horrible because it's cold. It's not cold like it is here, but it is you know, it's cold compared to the what you're used to. Uh, it's just, it's cold. And the other job you get, you start as foreigners, you get like grave digging because they're quite superstitious and they won't, they like it to give that sort of job to the foreigners to do because they, they're a bit superstitious about graves and stuff. So you get all pretty much all the crappy jobs and you get very low pay, uh, but you get by and if it's enough to get by, that's all that matters as long as you've got enough to, to get by. But you don't, tend to spend your days on the beach you know sunning yourself like you imagine you will <laughs> it doesn't really work like that oh in Greece you'll be sunning yourself on the beach but no if you are then you're thinking oh my god when am I going to have to go home because I'm going to run out of money I'm so surprised that you talk about grave digging I would have thought that was something they would have left for the men to do they don't seem to mind whether it's men or women, especially for foreigners. Uh, it doesn't matter. If you can do the job, you do the job. Uh, they have no, it's, it's very equal opportunities for us lot. And like I said, they, they don't mind that their grandmother does it or as anybody does it, as long as it's not them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think it's something that I would be interested in doing, grave digging. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I learned the meaning of hunger when I was there and oh. not having food. And if you haven't got food and you will literally eat anything because you are hungry. And uh, it's good. I think that's a good thing because people need to appreciate what hunger is. Because oh. especially now, I said that I, one thing I really hate is food waste waste mm-hmm. people who waste food and the supermarkets yeah, is, is that, that waste food the experience when there's there? people um partly but also because uh, you know there are people starving in the world there are people not just in the third world but here in this country people go without food because you're know, using food banks and stuff children go hungry they go to school because it's the only meal that they will get and uh, to, food waste is just criminal i mean there is not enough food to go around the population so to throw away food is it should be a criminal offence and it certainly should be finable. And uh, uh, you see people throwing away food and it's like, well, you've obviously never been hungry. You know, you need to learn what it is to be hungry. And uh, uh, my kids, even though they've never been hungry, fortunately, they're not fussy and they will eat anything. And I say to them, you need to be able to eat anything because one day you might not have the choice and you need to be able to eat anything that is given to you. I like that kind of uh, bringing and that idea that 
they need to be able to eat anything. I am quite a fussy eater. Yeah. Uh, um, mm. I, don't, I don't know how people, my, my mom particularly, when she was raising us, in the morning, there, there were seven of us kids, and each of the seven oh. would probably want seven different things for breakfast, and she would yeah. satisfy uh. everybody. I, I, I was the same as a mum. I, I would do the same, but you know, but I knew that I shouldn't be doing that because that's like really wrong to do to your kids because it's no. not helping them at all. <laughs> no, no, and to this day, I'm still forcing. As a mum, it's hard not waste, to. I am also an advocate for do not waste food. I don't. Yeah, want to see zero waste. Because I mean, I know people. Yeah, it is wrong. I know people who. Mm don't have anything and in this eat. day and age people should not have to go hungry you know it's wrong it's just wrong yeah. uh nobody should be hungry and yeah I, I i'm not exactly fussy but i'm not you know uh i don't eat meat and stuff and i, I don't, don't, don't i'm not exactly a vegan but plant-based okay. and uh, but that's my choice but if i was hungry i would still eat anything you know, because you would, and, and even though you say you're fussy, you would, if you were hungry, you would eat anything. Look at the people who have been in plane crashes and stuff. <laughs> I doubt Look it. Look at people who have been in plane crashes and they've eaten human flesh and stuff. Oh. And it, it, you do, it's, it's a survival instinct. It's an instinct. Let me just tell you this. If I was ever in a plane crash and I had to eat in my flesh, I would rather be dead. I would go hungry. Yeah, a, lo a lot of people hungry. say that. But if you're in the position and an instinct takes over, it's like a, like the maternal instinct or another, it's, it's an instinctive response which is not uh, in your front of your brain and your logical part of your brain. It's an instinctive response. It's the response that keeps your body alive. It changes a lot of how you think. There are people who would, as you say, and do starve to death because they will not go past, they won't cross that line. It does happen. But that instinctive response is very, very strong, that instinctive urge. It's like the maternal urge and people who, women who say, oh, I'll never have children. But they get that maternal urge and it takes over and it's an urge. And that's why the human race has continued because if we didn't have that maternal urge, it would probably just end, you know, people would probably go, oh, this is stupid, why are we having more children and stop doing it and th that would be the end of the human race, but the maternal urge keeps it going. So oh. it, instincts are uh, an important thing in life at the most. Okay, well, that's, that's mm. great. I know some of my colleagues that were, they, they, they would tell me, oh, I don't want a kid. I don't want to ever get married. And mm. these are the same people mm. that are like, down the line, you see them, they are married, they've got kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to be married. Things change. Yeah. <laughs> wanted kids. Yeah, wanted things change, kids. don't they? And like I say, and I find that uh, women who, they, they 
leave it to the later in life and they, they go past the age where they can have children, they often have this regret because it, they still experience the maternal instincts and they get that regret, even though it's a very thought out and wise and sensible decision for them to make. And they've actively made that choice. And I admire that choice because it takes them doing, you know, uh, especially with the overpopulation problem we have, it, it takes a lot of doing. And I admire that choice. And you can have a really good lifestyle as well if you choose to go like that. But they do often have that regret in them because it's just that they're denying an instinct and that sort of like messes with your head a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's not deviate from out of it today to fix today uh -huh. you. So yeah, so tell us about this adventure in um, in Greece. Did you meet anybody exciting? It, it was just work, 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 and that's it really. And after about three years, I just I, I actually I'm missing home now. I'm missing roast dinners. I'm missing family and because uh, one instead of having insurance and that one of the things that my mum made me do was she made me have keep an open return ticket so that I could always get back if something went wrong or something was terrible so I always had an open return ticket so as soon as I just decided that made that choice I, I've had enough I'm getting on the plane and going home and that's the end of it. That's so interesting that you said you missed home, you missed the roast dinners. Yeah, <laughs> miss the roast dinners. It's the one thing that they cannot do there is roast potatoes and gravy. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, God, I miss that so much. <laughs> when I came back from Greece, I went to college because I, I sort of missed that bit. So I went back to college to do my A-levels. And at the same time, I told you I was working in House of Fraser at the same time. And I'd saved up a bit of money and I went on holiday to Romania. And this was the year after, well, a few months after they had their revolution. So it was like, a, we didn't go to the beach. Like we went on a, it was like a, a tour, of, um, tour of Romania. What happened in Romania? We went on Ceausescu's boat and we went uh, to the, the square where they'd had the revolution and it was all bullet holes and everything. And, and you, the people would tell you about what had happened and it, it was really terrible. And it was like going back in time because this place had just been cut off for so long. And it was like going back in time and it was pretty much all horses and carts. And it was like they'd only just invented the wheel or something. You know, It was really like going back in time. It was brilliant brilliant place here but on the first day I was there I met this uh, guy and um, he was on a different tour but we got chatting and he swapped to be on the same tour as me is that in Romania in Romania yeah oh, yeah right. that was in Romania uh, you met yeah. uh, this yeah. guy okay yeah and um, uh, so we got we got we spent the whole holiday together and we got on really well and uh, everything was good and when when he came back, he was on the phone all the time and he came down to visit and stuff because he lived in Yorkshire. And uh, I was only 19, but he was 17 years older than me, which looking back is a little bit creepy, probably. Yeah, it probably is a bit creepy, you know, but he, he had a, a spinal injury when he was 19. So he, he never thought he would have children. So when I got pregnant, it was like... Uh, his dream come true and I was you know everything and it was so I moved up there to live with him in Yorkshire even though I knew nobody and nothing and 
left my job, uh, I left college, but I I carried on doing distance learning and then went back to do my exams, my A-levels, with my big belly stuck under the desk. Were you married to him? No, he he never even bought up marriage and it it was just never on the cards at all. Uh, Yeah, and then I had my son, uh, her son first in 1990 and uh, then two years later I had my daughter in 1992 and then basically uh, I was done with he'd done with me I'd given him the children that he never thought he'd had and that was that he didn't want me anymore <laughs> that was that so did he, uh, what, so happened? It, what happened in that relationship it, I was after I had the children I, I got a bit of postnatal depression and I was uh, I had a problem with food as well I was like eating 10 calories a day and running miles and exercising all the time and up all night on the exercise machine and getting less and less weight and less, less weight and in the end I ended up going into hospital for refeeding and he came in and he was he was training to be a nurse as well. So he he, he sort of knew everything that there is to be about nursing. And he came in and he said to me, there's nothing wrong with you. Get up, get out. And the, the hospital staff were going mad, like going, no, don't get out of bed. Don't get out of bed. Just go. Just tell him to go and that. Well, I wanted to see the kids and he brought the kids in. So I wanted to see the kids. But he, he, he was... He constantly told me that he constantly tried to play with my head and making me beg for money for sanitary towels and stuff and constantly trying to play with my head. And after I'd come home from hospital, the one day I came home from work and I just sat there, I said to him, you don't even care, do you? And he said, no. And I said, right, okay, I'm moving out. And so I got a house nearby and I moved out. And I could have the kids, uh, we could sort of share the kids because I was living nearby. But then, then I decided that because I didn't know anybody there, I decided that the best thing for me to do would be, well, I missed out of it, didn't I? I, 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 was, I was going back down to visit my friends and my friends and my family uh, on weekends every now, we'll say once a month, once every two months possibly. And my friends were, it was, it was the early 90s and it was the, the time of rave and we went to raves. And obviously we did all the drugs, the recreational drugs that you do at raves and we had a great time, met loads of people, you know, and it was just recreational. It was just one weekend every couple of months. So it was very, very recreational. What do you mean recreational? Is it, I mean, the partying or what? Yeah, yeah, literally, you just take it because you're going to a party and you don't take it the rest of the time. Recreational drug use is just, you know, it's it's literally just, you know, uh, every now and again for for fun because you're doing something, not because you're just sitting at home and doing it, you know, it's because you're so going out and going to a party. you to this? Was it, was it the, the guy or the uh, your friends? Oh, not the guy. No, he was very much anti-drugs, very much anti-drugs. And uh, I mean, he'd smoke a little bit of weed, but I, that, that, that's a different matter altogether. But no, he, he was very much against drugs. But it was just because everybody was doing it. If you went to a rave, everybody did. Literally everybody. I mean, raves would never have existed if it wasn't for drugs. That, that's the whole point of it. it you know, it just it wouldn't work with 80s. And they know that. It was back in the 90s, it was a different time. Um, and uh, anyway, the one day I, I came back, and because I'd been up all weekend on 
eat ecstasy and acid and whatever. And I just had a bit of a breakdown. I was because of my food, my weight was so low and everything. I just had a bit of a breakdown and fell a pit and ended up in hospital again. Yeah, again, he comes in and tells me there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you. And he just messed with my head all the time. So yeah, after after a while, I decided the best thing for me to do was to move back down to the Midlands because at least I got my family there. Because he did deliberately cut me off from my family as well, as uh, people like that tend to do. And I don't know what he told my family at the time when I was my weight was so low because I'm sure if he, they'd have known, they would have been up there like a shot. But I don't know what he told them, whether he told them nothing or whether he told them not to come. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but um, anyway, I decided the best thing to, to move back down there, not to stay with my friends. But So I thought I'd just take the kids with me. But he was like, no, that's not happening. That's not happening. You're not taking the kids. I said, well, I'll go and I'll find a suitable place for them to live. And then I'll, then I'll come get them. And he was all right then. Okay. Yeah. So it took me two weeks to find a house, a three-bedroom house that was suitable that would, because they needed to have separate bedrooms, being a boy and a girl. And uh, after those two weeks, I went back and he was like, no, you're not taking them. You're not taking them at all. And that was my biggest mistake was I should have took them there. And then uh, my kids, we weren't married. I should have took them. Uh, but I didn't. I thought the right thing to do was to leave them there because they were going to school and I didn't want to upset their schooling. And also, I have a fantastic relationship with my dad and I wanted them to have a relationship with their dad. As, as horrible as he was to me, he loved the kids and I wanted them to have a good relationship with their dad. Guys, stopped you from seeing your kids. Was it because you were homeless? Why did he stop you from seeing your kids? Given your circumstances and what you've just explained to me, do you think you were capable or you were in a good position to support your kids? And what did you do about him stopping you from seeing your kids? He just, he, he just didn't want me to have anything to do with them. He, 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 he I mean... We went to the family courts, but it took 12 months to get to the courts. And because it took so long, by that time, the court said, well, we don't want to upset the status quo. I mean, they came and visited me at my home and found, even though he told them I was a drug user and this, that and the other. Uh, and at the time, I was only using recreationally. So it was there was nothing for them to see. And the house was perfectly fine. There was, uh, the kids were fine. But even though the kids were only young and they're not supposed to do this, they asked the kids what they what they they preferred to do, and I presume they must because he he used to do this thing where he would buy try and buy them because he, he his family were quite wealthy and he would always like if he came to drop them off or something he would uh, pick them up and he would always have oh the first thing they would say is have you got a surprise for me and he'd have like a huge presents for them like really expensive presents and he would do everything he could to try and buy them I mean after a while they'd see through it and they'd say to me oh we know what you're doing and uh, my son would even like memorize his credit card and use his credit card without knowing and stuff because he just didn't notice it. and um 
and uh, I used to laugh about it, but he just didn't want me to be a part of their life. I, I, I'd done my job. I was a, an incu- a walking incubator. I'd done my job. I didn't want to. He didn't want me to be any part of their life anymore. But unfortunately, the courts, the courts, even though most people think, oh, the woman always gets it her way unless there's something really wrong, the courts gave us what they call shared care, so half and half. Okay. And um, but because we live. 200 miles apart and I don't drive so we decided that he would have them during the term time and I would have them during the holiday time and uh, we would split Christmases and New Year alternatively alternately and um, but every time they went away just it was like it was like almost like I wish they'd have been dead in a way because it was just breaking my heart more and more every time they went away and I just could not stop crying. I couldn't stop. And the only thing that would stop me hurting and stop my crying was the using heroin. And that was how I got into it. It was like, it was the only thing that just numbs, because it doesn't just numb your physical pain. It numbs your, your emotional pain. And that is what most people end up getting addicted is because not because of any physical pain but it's the emotional pain that it numbs and most people who get addicted it's because they've got some sort of trauma or some sort of pain in their life that they need to numb and they need to get through and that that's how oh, I got addicted wow. to it I'm so sorry about that how did you get the supply of your heroin why how did you know where to get it from well I was, I was living in inner city Wolverhampton and if you live in the inner city, it's not hard to get. It comes to you, basically. It's, uh, you know, drugs sell themselves. And so it's uh, um, it, it's never hard to find things like this. And once you get into it and you meet a few people, it's it, it's everywhere. You, you, you can't not see it. You know, it's absolutely everywhere. It's very hard to escape. Uh, and, you know, and these people, because they're making a lot of money off you, so... They, they, they'll quite, you know, brazenly push as much as they can on you. Because um, it's big money, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, it's not hard to, it's not hard to find. If you, people always say, you know, if you go to another town or something and you don't know how to, where to find some, you can go and ask a, a big issue seller or a prostitute or whatever and come and uh, offer to buy them a, a 10 pound bag or something and they'll, they'll, get you they'll sort it out for you so you never lost you know as long as you know the people who do it did you clean up i mean after getting into heroin what happened um well you try to get clean but the thing is unless you really really want it and you've you've reached the point where you're bored of it all you're doing is setting yourself up for a fail uh, these people who uh, they t- make their family go to rehab and stuff, they're setting them up for a fail. They're wasting their money and setting them up for a fail. The, the failure and the, the relapse rates for these rehab clinics is massive because they, they just really don't work. The only thing that works is you've got to have that hit that mindset where you don't want to do it anymore, you've had enough, you're bored, or possibly you've seen something really horrible, like you've seen somebody close to you die or something, and you, you've you've had that click in your mind, something's clicked in your mind, and you've said, right, I'm not doing it anymore, and that is the only way. 
you're the only way anybody ever stopped. I, I don't really know what to say to that because I'm not familiar with that part mm. of the system. But did you ever seek help for the addiction? Oh gosh, yeah. I did loads, loads of rehabs. I went to, into several residential rehabs. I went to, on a methadone program, went uh, uh, on a subutex program, uh, all sorts of things. But all they do is maintain you, basically. It's so that if you can't afford to have it every day, it, it maintains you so that you can live a normal life. Well, a normalish life means you've got to go to the chemist every day. And, you know, you've got the, the stigma of being an addict to carry around with you everywhere. But you'd be surprised how many people in your life are addicts, but you don't know. There is such a thing as a high-functioning addict. Uh, I know people who are teachers, who, who uh, doctors, whatever, and they're addicts. And you wouldn't know because as long as they've got a supply, nobody knows. It's only if their supply stops and they get ill. That's the only time you know. And then they get ill and they go, oh, they must be on drugs. When actually they're not on drugs. They're just ill because they haven't got any drugs. But, yeah, there's lots, lots of people who just, like function in normal society who are addicts and you, you would never even know at all. Okay. So what was the motivation for you going for rehabilitation? You said you went to so many rehab centers, rehab clinics, but what was the motivation behind that? Did you want to stop? We want to stop. You want to stop because it is not a good life. It's a terrible life never got any money work all the time or you some people do crime I don't know I couldn't do it so I just worked but you work all the time you're always tired and you're all you're doing it for is the drug and you're all and you're not doing it to get high even you're just doing it just to not be ill not to be horribly horribly ill so ill that you just can't do anything I mean it's horrific the illness is like nothing else I mean I've come off every other drug and drink and everything I never had a slightest withdrawal whatsoever but opiate withdrawal is another story altogether it's so intense it's so horrific and it just goes and people think oh it's over in five days it is not it takes months and months and months to get over even years to get over it it's horrific you literally, you like, you feel like you're never going to sleep again. You're, you're always going to be in pain. You're like, oh, it's just awful, awful. You feel like you, you feel like you should be dying, even though you're not really dying. You feel like you should be. It, it's horrible. The motivation behind most of you is just you don't want to live that life. It's, it's a terrible, horrible life. I mean, you, you only ever hang around with scummy, horrible people who are trying to use you, and it's it's no life whatsoever and you know i was constantly worried because my kids you know they're not stupid i never did it in front of them but they're not stupid of course they knew what was going on i just didn't want to be ill so i couldn't do anything with them so i had to try and make sure that i wasn't going to be ill when they were around and stuff so it was pretty awful so that's why you keep going to rehab even though it keeps failing you keep doing it because you just desperately want it to work but realizing it's not going to work until you're actually ready and you've made that decision in your head and for me it was uh, uh eventually when i went to prison because if so you do it for long enough and you, you're doing wow. these things for long enough 
Well, well, like most people who use, most people who use end up selling a bit here and there to friends or whatever to to help out, you know, to pay for their own habit. If you do that, eventually, if you sell, eventually you are going to get caught. That's the law of averages. It's going to happen. You started selling, did you? Yeah, yeah. I got caught the first time and fortunately I'd only got enough from a small amount on me. So I managed to convince them that it was for personal use and I just got a probation and a fine. Uh, but the second time I got caught, they, they, I'd got nothing on me because I hadn't been doing anything. But the, 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 one of the lads that I was selling to had to given my information to the police. So they've got a load of digital evidence and there was no denying it and they did. They got like all sorts of evidence on me. So I ended up going to court in Ipswich because okay. I, that's, that, that's where I'd been selling to the people down there. So that's where you go to court if, where you've done your crime. So I went to court down there and ended up with a two and a half year sentence. So it felt oh, terrible because I had terrible because oh. I had to ring my ring my mum and my dad and from the prison and say I've got two and a half years and I know it, it just broke their heart and it was terrible because as a parent you probably think oh my god it's the worst place in the world but actually prison is in this country is really not that bad at all. So what was life like in the prison? It's a lot like a boarding school. A lot like, uh, a, in fact, I'd imagine boarding school is probably worse. You can't do anything for yourself because everybody has to work by law. So you can't do anything for yourself because everything is somebody's job. So I can't do my own laundry because that's somebody's job to do our laundry. I can't cook my own dinner because that's somebody's job to cook dinners. So you can't do anything for yourself. So you've just got loads and loads of time on your hands. And you have to work, but work is not exactly hard work because everybody has to job, have a job. They're just little petty jobs, you know, and it's very, very trivial. But you can go to, instead of working, you choose to go to education classes or vocational education or something like that. So there's a lot of opportunities. And did you make use of the opportunities whilst you were in prison? I did. I, I um, I, I, I was going to start doing because uh, uh, I'd already done a year of my degree through Open University, and I was going to carry on doing that. But um, because it turned out I was only there for a year, I never actually got around to doing it. But well, you said you were sentenced for two and a half years. Yeah, but you, if you good behaviour and everything, you will generally do half or less than half of your sentence. All right. And you'll do more as if you fail drug tests or this, that and the other, then you'll do more. But other than that, or if you persistently break rules and end up in isolation and stuff, then you'll end up doing possibly your full sentence. But it's very, very unlikely. So did you get early release because you were good whilst in prison? Because I was good. Because when I went in there, I made the decision that, I wasn't going to do drugs when I was inside. I know you can get drugs, they're very available, but it's, they're very expensive and they're not very good either. So uh, I made a decision that I was not going to do it while I was in there. And I was really lucky because I, while I was in there, I found I met a doctor that changed everything for me because on the outside, most doctors who treat addicts, they can 
prescribe you anything they want, but they don't want to because it's a big responsibility. I mean, if you then go on and sell the medication that they prescribe you or, or you abuse that medication, they can get into a lot of trouble. And if you end up dying, then they can get it, they can lose their license and everything. So they don't like to take the risk. Okay, so when you say this doctor changed everything for you, what did he do to change things for you? He, instead of keeping me on methadone, because you can stay on methadone through the whole of your prescription, but methadone is just something that people get, basically get parked on. You, it's very, very hard. It's harder to get off than heroin. It gets so deep inside you. People say it gets into your bones and everything, but it, it is insidious. It's, they call it green handcuffs, liquid handcuffs. Because it is literally, it just, it just takes your life and locks you up forever. It's horrible stuff. And it's much stronger than people think. It's very strong. It's hard to function properly because you're always really dope tough and really dope. But they, a lot of people, their places like, a lot of people like that, a lot of places like that. But it's not the drug to use if you want to get clean. But the doctor in the prison, he trusted me and he trusted that I was telling the truth when I said I wanted to get clean. And he prescribed me fentanyl patches and then I would have to go every three days and the nurse would put it on and she would sign it. And then she would put another uh, tegaderm patch, like a clear, uh, really strong plaster over the top in case anybody, because some people would like take it off and pass it around and let other people have a use of it because they're very strong, obviously. Uh, and if anything like that happened, you'd be off it straight away and that's it. But so to make sure that I wasn't doing that or nobody was doing that to me because you can get bullied into doing that, uh, they they would sign it and make sure and they'd have to check it was right every time and then you'd get another one. And so they put me on that. And even though I was put on that, I could still feel the methadone coming out of my body. It was still painful, but it was not as painful because I'd got that. I was really lucky because I, as far as I know, there was nobody else in the prison on it. It was so I was just very, very lucky. I mean, I was a bit older than most of them probably, but I, I was just lucky that, that he trusted me. He trusted me enough to give me that because otherwise I'd probably still be parked on methadone now or dead or something because I wouldn't have got clean without it at all. So the advantages of these patches, what, what, what did you call them? A fentanyl. No. It's an opiate, a very, very, very strong. You might have heard of it because in America, a lot of the heroin dealers are mixing their heroin with fentanyl and it's what's causing a, bit, a lot of their overdose problems. They're having massive problems with a lot of people overdosing because it's, it's like thousands of times stronger than heroin. You need a very, very tiny bit. So a patch would last me three days, uh, you know, and I, I was fine on it. I was all right. I could function. I could have a, live a normal life. And it, being a normal medication rather than having going to the chemist every day and get methadone, it takes away the stigma of being a drug addict. Because it was prescribed legally for you. Yeah, yeah. So I was no longer really a drug addict then. I was I could live a normal life. But when I came out, I went to stay at my mum and dad's house because when you uh, come out on a, an electronic tag, you have to have somewhere which has got a, a telephone so that because it links up to the telephone so it recognises that you're at home every night and stuff. So I went to stay and you have to have a good address as well. You know, you can't go back to live where you used to live. That they're not going to that isn't going to wash. They say you want you to live somewhere, you know, solid uh, where you're going to be okay. And um, 
so I went to live at my mum and dad's. Um, so when I went home to my mum's and I was staying there, she's got two dogs and the patch would keep coming off because it was coming loose. And I'd find it on the in my trousers or on the floor. And I thought if the dogs choose that, they're going to be dead. So I went to the doctor and the doctor swapped me onto morphine pills because then at least we knew that we're going into our stomach and not lying on the floor for the dog to eat. And um, basically I, I was sort of like stayed on those but reduced them and reduced them and reduced them and reduced them but through that I've been able to live a normal life uh, and not as an addict. Did you have any aftermath from your experience with the drugs or withdrawal symptoms? Well because I'm obviously reducing the morphine I can I can control that so I can reduce it a little bit at a time uh, i mean i get 100 milligram capsules and i can open up the capsule and take like a tiny bit out and so i can just do it like that. but yeah i get ill at night i get ill at night but i can put up with that and uh it's something you've got to get off eventually even though it is prescribed but also because i've got arthritis in my feet i've got uh, autoimmune issues and stuff so it's prescribed for genuine pain as well yeah the morphine. taking a lot of paracetamol and stuff as well so you gotta work your way around it but there's no way of doing it without having withdrawal symptoms there is no way of avoiding it you've got to put up you've got to have it at some point you can delay it but you've got to have it at some point you've just got to accept it and you're going to have it and that's it but it's not so much the physical withdrawal as when you come off you suddenly get all the emotions back that you were numbing for years and years and you just start crying at everything and everything's like super emotional and also you can feel everything your body's suddenly not numb and you can feel everything and so a lot of people find that very hard to deal with oh thank you so much for sharing your experience so in all what advice would you give your 17 year old self Take the kids. <laughs> don't listen to him. Take the kids with you. <laughs> and also don't go out with somebody who's 17 years older than you. Are you mad? That's, that's <laughs> child abuse. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't say don't do drugs because that's ridiculous. I mean, I know from my own children. People will do drugs and it's no good. The more you say don't do it, the more they will want to do it. It's forbidden fruit. So it's ridiculous to say don't. It's just to say be aware, be aware. Let, do the drugs, don't let the drugs do you. Oh, and from your kid's perspective, when you say you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't say don't do drugs, would you tell your kids mm. do drugs? Yeah, yeah. I told my kids, I know you're going to do drugs. Come to me for your drugs because I don't want you to buy them off some no milk on the street who's going to sell you God knows what. I want you to know that you're having something that's proper and I want to know that you're safe. And I would just want you to be honest with me. It's the only rule I've ever had with them is I've just said, you have to be honest with me. And there is no other rule at all with them. They just have to be honest. And that is the only thing that I ask of anybody, whether it's my children or my family or my friends or anything. The only thing that I ask of anybody is that they're honest with me. All right. Do they, they come to you now, I mean, for advice when, when they want drugs or something? 
Not so much. They've got their own lives now. They're older. They're in the, the what do you think, 25 and 27 or something. They've got their own life. So they do their own thing these days. But it's something we can still talk about. It's not an issue we can't talk about. Oh, that's, that's great. It's very important for kids to be able to talk to their parents about just anything. And that's what I was trying to get. There's been times where I've had to say, they've said to me, I'm being honest with you, please don't shout at me. And I've had to go off and cool down because sometimes we shout at our kids just because it's our own anger. You have to recognize that and just recognize that it's, it's, they're being honest with you. It's a big deal and they don't deserve to be shouted at for it. They just deserve to be have an honest conversation and that's all. It can be hard, but that's it's something you have to have to do, I think. Yeah, so we'll still, we'll still talk about stuff and talk about it and whatever. It's okay. They know that I'm not going to have a go at them or judge them for it because I'm not in no position to judge anybody, especially not them. All right. Do you still feel the need to use drugs recreatively or for any other reason? I, I don't I don't anymore because I don't really go out or anything. Cause I'm not going to do it sitting at home on my own. It, it's a bit it's like drinking on your own or something. It's a bit ridiculous, you know. I, if I went to a party and something was going around, I might if, if I took the fancy and whatever. But I, I wouldn't touch heroin again because I know that I've got a weakness and I, I know that it, it, there's no such thing as just doing it once. It would be it, That would be it again. So I wouldn't do that again. But I, I, I might. I don't know. It's, if it came from me, I might. But I, I don't know. I can't say yes or no. Because oh, right, that's yeah. the mood texture, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's something that, I mean, I think sometimes you wouldn't be able to tell what your behavior would be until you are in the situation to make a decision, to make choices. There's, but there's other th- other things I want to spend my money on now. There's other things I want to do. I've missed a lot of years and there's things that I want to do. So... Uh, I, 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 there's, you know, there's places I want to go and things I want to do. So I need mm-hmm. to be spending my money on that instead, really. All right. Would you say that the situation that you were in at the time you started using drugs was what made you to start using because of the friends around you, peer influence? Was that what actually made you to start using no i think it wasn't it it was simply the fact that i was just emotion in so much emotional pain and if it hadn't have been heroin it would have been something else and frankly i i personally i've i've had family members die from alcohol abuse and it's a worse death and it's a worse situation than using heroin it but you know it's a it's a horrible drug alcohol and uh uh and the damage that alcohol does to your body is irreversible as well, whereas the damage that heroin does to your body generally reverses itself as you, if you stop. So unless you die using it, then you can get well again, whereas the if, if you damage your body from alcohol, you, unless you have liver transplant, or so, you're always going to be ill. You're always going to be ill until you die, and it's a terrible death. So if it hadn't been heroin, it would have been something else. Oh, I'm so sorry that you actually went through such a painful moment that it pushed you to um, 
get into this addiction? Or what have you learned mm -hmm. through your experience? Addiction doesn't, addiction doesn't respect, it doesn't respect boundaries, it doesn't respect any limitations. It doesn't matter who you are, anybody can be an addict. Anybody in your life can be an addict. And it doesn't mean they're a weak person, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they've, they've slipped up and, and we're all human, we all slip up, we all make mistakes. It can happen to anybody and, it, it, it you know, it just takes one person to just hold out a hand and say, uh, you know, here's the help that you need. That's all it takes. Oh, that's so nice to know. Uh, do you still have support right now, even after all these years? I do uh, for like uh, mental health support and stuff, but um, not directly for sort of drugs or anything because uh, I don't feel that I really need it. So. Oh, that's good. But in terms of your mental health, what support do you have? I have, uh, because for years and years, they, they, I was on all sorts of medications and stuff, and I was in and out of hospital, um, until one day somebody gave me some sleeping pills and I slept all night. Because when you're on drugs and you, you don't actually sleep, all you do is you sort of nod in and out of consciousness for about 20 minutes at a time. So for about 30 years, I never actually really slept, just nodded in and out. I never had a proper full night's sleep. So when I had a full night's sleep, I was like, wow, so full of energy and I've got so, so much. It was like mad and my main mind was going mad and suddenly I could, so now it's like I have to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night and have to have a full night's sleep and everything has to be just perfect so that I can sleep at night and uh, not on pills or anything, just, just I have to get everything right in the bedroom and everything, I have to spend all day trying to wear myself out so that I'm as tired as I can be. And just because the sleep just makes you feel so good. It's amazing. It's like the best feeling ever. <laughs> I just love it. Oh. <laughs> sleep is my new drug. Oh, <laughs> I am happy that at least you find something that is helping you, your uh -huh. mental health and with everything going on with you. And uh, I'm so appreciative. Uh. I really, I, I, Honestly, I appreciate your being open about the addiction, number one, because not a lot of people would come out and say, oh, yes, I was in, uh, I was actually in prison. And another thing is like, even when you get out of prison, there's so much stigma attached to that. You know, um, even getting jobs. I used to work in recruitment, and the first time I spoke to somebody who had been to prison, I was shocked. Oh. But the best thing you can do if you've got a criminal record and you're in that position is just to be honest, because the last thing that you, they want the recruiter wants is for you to lie. Because if yeah. you're lying about one thing, what else are you lying about? Exactly. You need to be totally honest. And if if they judge against you, then so be it. But you have to be honest about it. There's no point trying to hide it because it will come out in the end and you'll just look like a liar. So it, you've just got to be honest about it. There's no point hiding stuff. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. well, I really appreciate your time today, Pat. No um, worries. I wish you the very best with everything. Mm -hmm. I hope if you ever feel the need to talk to anybody, I'm here. 
Yes, thank I you. Know there's a there's a line they call campaign against living miserably. Mm -hmm. There's it's a charity and they are available on 0800-585858. They also offer confidential web chat to anybody who feels, you know, we can, we, sometimes we get a bit emotional about things. So you can always mm -hmm. talk to somebody on that phone line and uh, they will be more than happy to talk to you. But I'm equally available if you ever need anyone to talk to. And um, there's also the organization called MIND. They are available mm -hmm. 0300. One, two, three, 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 nine, three. So mm -hmm. hopefully everything gets better for you. Yeah, yeah, it's all here. I'm starting back to do finish my degree in February. So yeah, it's it's all on the up. We're all going oh, the right way now. <laughs> I am so proud of you. <laughs> well yeah. done. See oh. if I can finish it by the time I reach retirement age. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that keeps easy. That keeps your mind occupied. Yeah. So you know, what else am I going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. So great chatting with you. Okay. Bye for now. All right then. Bye. Bye bye now. Thank you for listening. Please download and share with your friends and family, and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple. Google, Amazon, Spotify, IAT Radio, Listening Notes, Podchaser, Good Pods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocket Cast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comment, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also on our website, www.podbean forward slash midmusings.com. Thank you very much.